right. Hello and welcome to the Middle East Forum Speaker Webinar Series. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Dr. Zudi Jasser, President of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy and the co-founder of the Muslim Reform Movement, join us to discuss my story, the making of an anti-Islamist Muslim. Dr. Jasser will speak for 10 to 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Dr. Zudi Jasser. Thank you. It's, it's a pleasure and always an honor to uh, be with the Middle East Forum and uh, with all of you. Um, and I can't tell you enough how much our partnership and friendship and trust has uh, meant to us in a lot of the projects and work that we've done with the uh, Middle East Forum, and uh, it's uh, a pleasure to tell you a little bit about my story, and uh, it'll just be a, a little taste uh, over 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, it's hard to get the whole narrative in, but um, I'll give you a few of the, uh, I think, important highlights. Uh, and especially today, as we see America uh, basically uh, on many of our streets burning uh, as a result of the uh, hard left and uh, some of the alliances that we see between the hard left and the Islamists, uh, we're, we're seeing that the narrative that creates anti-Islamist Muslims is pretty similar, I think, to the narrative that creates pro-American, pro-liberty, uh, anti-radical left uh, Americans, if you will. Uh, that, that trajectory is not much different. I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin and um, had really no association or understanding of political Islam or the Muslim Brotherhood or Islamist organizations. Uh, my family uh, were uh, Syrian immigrants uh, that uh, escaped Baathism and uh, instilled in me an understanding that they were able to teach me and instill in me the ideas of Islam and America uh, better than they could have anywhere else in any Muslim-majority country because those countries were run by tyrannies and dictatorships, uh, like at the time with Hafez Assad and then his son later, uh, that prevented them from having any freedom in interpreting and modernizing their interpretation of Islam. And I, I came from a pretty educated family. My grandparents, uh, one grandparent was a uh, um, Supreme Court judge, family court judge in Sharia on my mom's side in Damascus. And my other grandfather, Zudi Jasser, was a uh, uh, newspaper editor and businessman in uh, Aleppo and a politician. So uh, they were heavily involved in uh, democratization, which obviously failed uh, as Baathism took root. Uh, but uh, that's basically what created the pro-American uh, narrative, if you will, that I grew to know in Wisconsin. And the understanding, I think one of the keys to understanding how I viewed Islam is in a very God-centric way, that it wasn't, uh, you know, I never really developed a loyalty for collective Islam or the faith itself, if you will, but rather for my personal relationship with God and my understanding of the interpretation of the Quran that my parents taught me, my grandparents taught me. And uh, yes, it uh, was not normative Islam. It wasn't uh, the Islam that I later got to see was being taught in most of the mosques by the Islamist establishment. Uh, but I think in that small town, uh, I was able to then launch into college and uh, have a rubric of morality, integrity, and understanding of my faith and relationship with God that was in many ways impenetrable to the Islamist attempt to hijack that. So what happened when I went to the University of Wisconsin? I uh, quickly became a member in the Muslim Student Association, which lasted about three months, and uh, 
began to realize that while they used the Muslim identity, it wasn't about faith, it wasn't about uh, religion, but it was rather about their political agenda and uh, their, especially their anti-Israel uh, motives, their anti-Semitism, and uh, it was uh, pretty much dominated by the Palestinian movement at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, and I slowly uh, began to be a quick study on political Islam and and uh, learn from imams and others about uh, how they viewed our faith uh, through the lens of political movements, through a anti-Western, anti-American lens, and not through one that is God-centric. Uh, and these are important because in our programs that we started in the organization that I've uh, founded since 9-11, uh, it has really focused our treatment, if you will, on the problem and terrorism is simply a symptom. Uh, and uh, the permutations of various Palestinian movements, uh, we knew them in the 80s as the General Union of Palestinian Students. Uh, they've morphed probably 30, 40 times. Now they're the SJP. Uh, folks, and uh, it's all pretty much the same uh, far-left uh, Islamists uh, that are basically uh, all about uh, uh, endorsing Hamas, endorsing radical organizations and Islamist movements. Um, so ultimately, as, as I hunkered down in college, I began to try to find Muslims that were simply focused on fasting, on worship, on prayer, and it became increasingly difficult to find. I was on a Navy scholarship through medical school, and uh, then became pretty apolitical as I was serving my 11 years. Uh, but I did realize that, and you're seeing this now with the far left, is that the difference between me and the, the, the Islamists is the Islamists were sort of raised in households and in mosques and elsewhere where they were taught that the primary loyalty, the primary ideology that they would die for is political Islam, is the Islamic state, where they're a minority they simply follow the laws of the land if they're not terrorists, if they're not violent, but they're still Islamists. If they're a majority, like in Erdogan's Turkey, they take over and simply use democracy as a tool to take over societies. Versus my understanding and why I joined the Navy and from the way I was raised from my parents is that democracy gives every person an individual right to uh, have that relationship with God and to interpret Islam the way they feel. Uh, they should, and that freedom is what God judges us, judges us on and is integral to uh, the practice of faith and the reality of that faith. Uh, so uh, some may feel that's a mutation. Uh, I do feel that uh, there's a significant plurality, if not a majority of Muslims that uh, believe that. And in many ways, the clerics and the clergy, while they certainly are controlling normative Islam and they're controlling the establishment of our community, I do believe that uh, they uh, are not, you know, we don't have clergy per se. So many Muslims simply just don't go to mosque and, and uh, have come to the West in, in order to escape a lot of that control. So the, the lens that I viewed what I would die for in my loyalty is the lens of liberty, enlightenment. Uh, and, uh, and as I went into medicine, you know, I looked at one of the founding fathers, uh, like Benjamin Rush, who is a physician uh, and other physician role models, uh, Maimonides and Jewish history uh, and others that have uh, talked about how uh, the personal relationship between a physician and their patient is best borne out in liberty and freedom. And I think similarly in our faith. And we're seeing now uh, in the streets of America that uh, secularism, hyper-secularism and atheism and socialism is the new religion for the left. And the Islamists and their religion have a collectivism. 
And as long as they have common enemies, they're going to work together in their red-green axis. Uh, at some point, they'll end up fighting one another when they're uh, vying for power once they've destroyed those who believe in freedom and the state of Israel and other enemies that they perceive in their red-green alliance. So ultimately, I've seen, you know, in my uh, um, maturation, if you will, that the special sauce, if you will, of what created my my lens for the world is freedom, sense of personal space, that separation of mosque and state. We formed an organization not to fight terrorism, which I see as a symptom, but to counter Islamism. And I think the key to our work has been, yes, we're against political Islam, we're against the Islamic State concept and its instruments of Sharia, its Sharia State uh, imposition of Hadood laws and all the other things that we can talk about if you want in the Q&A and elsewhere. Uh, but the reality is you can only build a movement if you articulate what you're for. And, uh, you know, ultimately what made me who I am is the belief that I can only prosper and lead and, and, and be successful if I'm for liberty and I protect not only my freedom, but others' freedom, the freedom of others. So, you know, I think the, the reality is, is that, um, while my Navy time helped solidify my belief in American freedom, you know, you have to look at the difference. I have a chapter in my book on Nidal Hassan. Nidal joined the Navy and had a resume, uh, embarrassingly, that looked similar to mine. But what made him different was he had inculcated into his brain and into his mindset and his consciousness that the, the conspiracy theories of America being evil, that the democracy is, is a, a fiction, and that ultimately, there is no such a thing as freedom, and that the only way to, to God is through the Islamist uh, rule set and through uh, bin Laden and, and uh, Al-Qaeda and then ultimately ISIS uh, way after that, uh, after the Arab awakening. In the last couple minutes, I want to tell you, so what's the record so far since 9-11? There have been a couple major inflection points, and I want to separate two inflection points, and this will then tie sort of the Nidal Hassan story into my story, which is obviously a completely different. And how do we make sure that we have much less of that and much more of freedom-loving Muslims that not only love freedom, but will fight for it and die for it and believe in it and uh, go to the streets? Because that's probably where we've been the most lacking is not only finding Muslims that agree with us, but activating them and getting them to want to lead and speak out, which has been the most difficult thing. There's been some macro inflection points and micro inflection points. So macro inflection points have been 9-11, uh, the uh, Iraq invasion, with uh, uh, I think, showed that uh, there's no military solution to the problem of political Islam, be it the Iranian Shia permutation of Khomeinism or the Sunni permutation of the Muslim Brotherhood or Jamaat Islamiyah in Pakistan, uh, or Erdogan's permutation. Uh, there's no military solution to that. Uh, and I think the Iraq invasion and the Afghani invasion have, have, have proven that. Uh, I supported those, and I still think in retrospect uh, there, we could make an argument that uh, it was the right thing to do, but obviously, 18 years later, the lack of success has proven that uh, prolonged wars is not a way to change ideas and will not do that. Now, you can make arguments that we haven't invested in, in protecting secular liberals on the ground. We haven't invested in institution building, but they're going to have to build their own states. It's not up to the American taxpayer to do that. And I do think that we need to have policies that empower Islamists in a macro sense, anti-Islamists and defeat Islamists in a, in a macro sense. Uh, and now other inflection points, obviously, is the Arab awakening. I think the Arab awakening proved that the American 
uh, that the Western Muslim population and the global Muslim population is ready to take on the dictators and, and take on the tyrants. But it also creates an opening and a vacuum that will quickly get filled by the most organized in their society, which are the Islamists that have been waiting for these moments for 60, 70, 80 years since the uh, early 20th century. So, you know, ultimately, uh, this is the problem is that when vacuums get created, they're going to be filled by those that have been organizing in the mosques, which are the Islamists. And uh, I think now, uh, while we've seen deflection points macro-wise in 2011, 2012, I think this past few weeks we're seeing a new one, which is with the UAE-Israel agreement. We're going to see that probably grow to one with Saudi Arabia, with Morocco, with Bahrain, with Oman, and other countries that are going to begin in a macro sense to marginalize the Muslim Brotherhood and begin, to, I hope, to create opportunities for not only anti-Islamist Muslims, and this is the problem, is that we thought that mission accomplished was going to happen just by all of a sudden they become freedom-loving Muslims after we got rid of their tyrants, but that's not going to happen. So the stepwise process is going to have to happen through benevolent monarchs, through processes in which uh, civil society can get built. And I think the UAE model, the Oman model, may be one of those that go that direction. Now, I say might because eventually those tyrants are going to have to give away some uh, of the reins to democracy, to real liberty, because we can't be credible as reformists if we say we're against theocracy, but we're pro-secular uh, dictatorship or pro-tyranny of some kind. And uh, Dr. Pipes and I had, I think, a very good debate against uh, an, another uh, debate, uh, folks. I tell you, look at that at the Intelligence Squared, in which we talked about the difference between why elected Islamists are even worse than the dictators, but yet ultimately, in a macro sense, the hope is that third pathway. On a micro level, in the last two minutes, I want to tell you what's been happening sort of on the ground. Uh, we have had, I, I like to think of the cup as half full. We've certainly revisited what our strategy was. Uh, you know, if you talk to me in 04, 05, when we launched, I thought by 2009 or 10, we would have tens of thousands of Muslims on the streets uh, talking about liberty, waving the American flag, uh, uh, talking about uh, freedom and speaking out against the Islamists for various reasons. Uh, that has not come to fruition. And uh, I can give you a, a litany of excuses, and they're all excuses. And the bottom line is, is I think most Muslims in America are comfortable. They're, they're not uncomfortable the way the, the Arab streets were uh, when they fought against dictators. And to this point, they've not seen Islamists as a threat to them here, so they're not waking up against it. Uh, and ultimately, then, we have to hope that the American government and, and others can begin to re-strategize to wake up the Muslim community to, to fight for its rights against the Islamists that are destroying them wherever they have control. So I think we've shifted towards a building program for future Muslim leaders. That's what our Muslim reform movement has been all about, where we've worked together with leaders like Ezra Nomani, uh, Rahil Raza, uh, Zainab Zeb, uh, and uh, a number of others that you'll be, you may be aware of. Uh, that are doing a lot of strong work um, with uh, Majid Nawaz in London and a number of other activists that have started their own organizations and doing similar work. And uh, I think if you look at our ability to change the lexicon, uh, very few people are talking about the threat of terrorism and more are talking about the threat of political Islam. And again, I think Muslim ability to articulate that difference has been important. And certainly as has the work of MEF and other anti-jihad 
uh, think tanks that have uh, also, I think, educated Americans to the importance of that distinction. Uh, but I do think that ultimately, while we've changed the verbiage, we've had our leadership program, uh, if you look at the effect of simply the squad, uh, Ilhan Omar, Linda Sarsour, and a few care leaders, they might be able to fill a few dinner halls and have tens of thousands of supporters, but still, the four or five million Muslims in America do not support them. Uh, they might do so implicitly, and which is certainly they should be held accountable for that. Uh, but I do believe that the vast majority of Muslims are still a constituency that are not spoken for by anybody. And uh, hopefully we can grow our bandwidth to do that. And that's what our Muslim Reform Movement program is all about. Our Muslim Liberty Project, which is to try to teach youth that now some of them have matriculated through uh, some of the uh, uh, Naval Academy, West Point and law schools. Uh, that's we're trying to teach them sort of that same narrative that I was blessed to have had uh, growing up in Wisconsin and begin to fight against the imams. And we saw now with the Democratic Party, they on the one hand have had the wrong folks, the wrong imams. They're embracing the more radical anti-police ones more so this week. But on the other hand, the Linda Sarsours and Ilhan Omars, I think you may be noticing are beginning to get marginalized. So they're marginalizing the political Islamists more, but the the imams are being brought in closer. And I think it's because of the public uh, the public price that they have to pay with the anti-Semitism of Linda Sarsour and, and Ilhan Omar versus the imams are sort of this, uh, um, you know, the, the uh, lowest hanging fruit phenomena where they have a bigotry of low expectations for our clergy, if you will. So I'll stop there and uh, would be happy to take your questions about what we're doing or my own story. All right, thank you so much. Uh, first question we have in is, have you faced threats from Islamist groups for your opinions and activities? Um, so the threats, you know, are, are varied. Uh, certainly, uh, we are in their crosshairs. Uh, the, the Council on American Islamic Relations uh, constantly is uh, trying to shut us down when we uh, uh, speak at various campuses, uh, be it at, when I spoke at Duke University or Notre Dame, uh, uh, and projects that we do not only with uh, MEF, but with uh, um, Ayan Hirsi Ali and others. Uh, but at the end of the day, I do think that you may notice that they target us less than they do the former Muslims or the non-Muslims who do this work. And uh, that is not surprising because the price they would pay to uh, uh, take on a Muslim who is pretty orthodox in our personal practice would be much higher. That doesn't mean we're immune to it. Uh, you know, if you look at CARE and our, our social media feed in the last few weeks, uh, they say I'm the anti-Islam, the piece I wrote in Newsweek about the synergy of Black Lives Matter uh, with the Islamists, uh, they immediately came out and said the anti-Islam Zudi Jasser, uh, you know, and, and the people that know me uh, laugh hysterically at that and say, uh, you know, to label me as anti-Islam is simply incredulous. But uh, they continue to try to do that because they know the vast majority of folks that read that won't do their homework. Uh, they're able to uh, um, marginalize us to less popular venues as they do in certain universities. And that's why I think one of the things the police and and universities and others can do is at least protect our platforms uh, so that we can get the message out because we're gonna be far more effective. You'll see a debate I had with Congressman Ellison in 2008 that the investigative project uh, has on their site and, and taped uh, was far more effective at exposing his radicalism than I think anyone had been before because he wasn't able to effectively call me an Islamophobe. So we do get threats, It's uh, uh, but uh, 
we keep going and uh, dismiss it as a small price to pay compared to what my family's paying in Damascus and Aleppo for their, their fights for freedom. That's a course, fabulous point. Um, so you spoke about the Fort Hood shooter, Nadal Hassan. Can you explain a little further about that? Yeah, I think if you look at Nidal Hassan was going around uh, uh, what used to be Walter Reed uh, Medical Center with a card that said Soldier of Allah. The 180-page report uh, uh, about him uh, barely had the word Islam or, or Jihad in it, let alone uh, Islamism and, and all of the ideologies that should have been uh, uh, targeted and, and discussed by the entire commission that discussed uh, how he was radicalized and how it was missed. And I came from that environment. I know, you know, they talked about in the report his grand rounds where he was supposed to talk about psychiatric topics and he ended up talking about, um, you know, the uh, imams that were, um, you know, his his mentors. He didn't call them mentors at the time, but that he uh, had been uh, talking about uh, political Islam and Sharia, etc. So, at the end of the day, I think what's important to understand about Nidal Hassan is that he was being incubated in a military that should have been smart enough. Uh, it'd be like in the Cold War, having a, a communist sympathizer openly sympathizing with a communist, and yet we did not know that while we were uh, trying to understand the penetration of the Soviets into our uh, military. And, and to this point, we still don't have an adequate anti-jihad, anti-Sharia program in the military. Uh, there's been a cleansing of the educational process. And I think Nidal Hassan, uh, the, the Boston bombers and, and others are, are case in points. I mean, just a month ago uh, in the UK, they're trying to remove the term Islamism again. And it's almost as if when they think the world's asleep, they try to tr prevent us from understanding the education uh, that's necessary to have uh, in order to prevent this from happening again. And I think Nidal Hassan's narrative is case in point of all the different warning signs that we should be paying attention to. Thank you. Uh, Islamic terrorists and thousands of imams and millions of Muslims who support them quote from the Quran to justify their actions. Can you discuss some of the many passages in the Quran which call for war against non-Muslims and Islamic supremacy throughout the world? Are these being misinterpreted, or how do moderate Muslims like yourself deal with this? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's, I think it's uh, disingenuous to say they're being misinterpreted. Uh, there's no doubt that uh, there are various passages in the Quran that talk about war, that talk about legitimizing battle, and the Prophet Muhammad was not just a spiritual leader, he was the head of a military. Uh, but the problem for Muslims, I think, and when we talk about reform, we talk about not only what did the Prophet do in 628 you know, CE, but what would he do if he were alive today? So uh, we can't even agree on whether Assad actually used chemical weapons uh, in many uh, discussions, let alone what actually happened in 623 CE. So there's no doubt that there were aggressive militaries, that uh, most of the Muslim world was... Um, you know, became Muslim not by uh, simple simple conversion, but by offensive moves of the Muslim militaries. Uh, but that was pre-secular liberal enlightenment processes. That was in an era in which there was no global uh, uh, historical uh, government. So we can't historical government that was based in liberty like the American Revolution and ultimately what happened in Europe. 
So I think ultimately we can't have an ahistorical approach to it. What's the historical arc? Those passages, yes, there are passages that say, uh, you know, especially in Hamas's uh, charter, it says, kill the Jew where you find them. Now that passage is from Hadith, it's not from Quran. I think it's important that especially we make a distinction. Yes, the Islamists will, will use either with equal authority, but for most Muslims, the Quran has a much heavier authority than Hadith that many of us believe is corrupted. Now, when you look at the Quran, it says, for example, cut the hands of those who steal. That's the literal interpretation. And yet I was taught by my grandfather that it means uh, a sever can mean not just cut literally, but remove them from society. So therefore a modern interpretation would be supported to take that person out of society and put them in prison. And I think uh, similarly, the passage that says, don't take Jews as friends, that's the Saudi Wahhabi interpretation. And, uh, and by the way, the UAE now has had sermons talking about the need for not only friendship with the Jewish community, but recognizing the state of Israel, which I think is so important. I criticize the reforms of MBS because it wasn't complemented by clerics that actually from the mimbars and the pulpits articulated that same reform. It was simply rule changes by the royalty. The UAE realized, I think now, that they have to have that rule change associated with theological endorsement by imams. So I think similarly, those passages need to be reinterpreted and say, okay, this refers to one battle at that time. Let's not then profile that to all Jews. Say it just referred to one tribe at that time. Let's now make peace with the Jewish community, not revisit that and say that at this point, we, we adhere to wars only based on secular nation states, and no longer do we have militaries driven by Islamic identity and a green flag, but rather by the nation states. And that's why our main mission at AIFD is the separation of mosque and state. As long as you have an Islamic flag and a military that's jihadi, you can't modernize the Islamic state and have a secular constitution because ultimately the, the spirit of that military will be no different than what they feel the Prophet Muhammad's military did. And that's why Erdogan, when he went into Syria, was slaughtering Kurds and they were taking videos about jihadism. So the same thing, I think, why I joined the Navy was it was a secular, secular military and I rejected loyalty to the global Islamic movement. Thank you very much. So as we believe here at the Middle East Forum, Islamism is the problem and moderate Muslims are the solution. Is there anything in a non, that a non-Muslim can do or does the solution have to come from within the Muslim world? I think the most important thing non-Muslims can do is whether it's government policy and embracing uh, through grants and through programs, anti-Islamist Muslims, we can't sit on the sidelines. We can't even be neutral. We need to empower and lift up uh, a moderate, not only, I don't really like the term moderate, anti-Islamist, pro-liberty, pro-freedom Muslims that speak out against anti-Semitism, speak out against the misogyny that's interpreted from the Quran and Hadith, speak out against the hate and bigotry that so many in the, uh, associated with the Black Lives Matter movement and others that are, uh, uh, I think, hijacking our faith community. So non-Muslims, I think, and you see this happening in interfaith gatherings and others where groups like the ADL are, are partnering with the wrong Muslims and making our platforms very difficult to, uh, they take the oxygen in the room. So one is government programming with the right Muslims and empowering an anti-Islamist narrative from Washington. Two is media platforming so that it's not just the Mahdi Hassans and, and uh, others that are getting time and 
the Al Sayed from Michigan that's always on CNN. Uh, uh, these are Islamists that are, are hijacking representation of our community. Same thing with Ilhan Omar and others. So media, third university settings. Uh, I think a lot of the programs need to begin to teach why reform is necessary in anti-Islamism. Look at universities near you and see whether any of that curricula is being taught. It's not. It's simply uh, the, the, the left not only has hijacked its own socialist uh, agenda, but is, is advocating for the Islamist agenda within the universities. Thank you. Can you comment uh, real quick in our two minutes left? Why you, um, sorry, about new Muslim immigrants in the US? In what way? Um, in specific? I can tell you the, so if you look at immigration for, for Muslims in the West and in America, um, it's not a surprise that some of the main programs that the Council on American Islamic Relations, some of the Somali Relief Fund organizations that uh, helped elect Ilhan Omar and others, they hijack a lot of these new communities that start with a love for America, come here uh, very, very green and, and uh, willing to learn, and then they get indoctrinated so that they're more radical in the second generation than they were initially as immigrants, like my family was. Why? Because the programming for immigration is that America owes them something, that they're victims. That's, and, and that's why you see some of the folks leading the, uh, the tearing down of statues are performing the same acts that they did tearing down the statues in Afghanistan and elsewhere, because this is what the Islamists in America are teaching them. So one of the things we have sort of, it's still on paper, it never got to fruition, is a program to begin uh, immigration um, support for new immigrants to help their youth programs, be it in sports and otherwise. We did that in one of the inner city Phoenix programs here uh, a few years ago where we worked closely and our community organizer, Courtney Lonergan, who's been part of the reform movement, has helped us do with some of the uh, immigrant youth. Uh, because so many of them try to separate them out. Islamism is about separatism. So they tell the girls, for example, you have to wear a hijab or you can't be involved in sports, so you need to stay in class, and they separate them out and make them feel different, versus when we got involved, we said that's, that's nonsense. They can still play, play sports. You don't need to treat them differently. Treat them like you would any other, any other uh, uh, youth, if you will. And I, I think those type of inner city Immigration programs are very important to protect them from the Islamist influence. Perfect, thank you. Well, unfortunately, we've come to the close of our webinar. I'm sure we could have gone on for another hour with the amount of questions we have in. Uh, thank you again, Dr. Josser, for speaking with us today. Anytime, thank you for all that you do. Appreciate it. Thank you. For our viewers, please be on the lookout for our forthcoming weekly webinar offerings email coming out this weekend. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.